If you've, uh, if you've been with us um, any length of time, you know that uh, this summer we're in a series on the book of Romans. Uh, it's, a, it's a book of the Bible where, it, where the Apostle Paul shares his gospel. And he actually calls, he says, this is my gospel. This is the, this is the truth that I teach uh, when I go places. In fact, a lot of people think that the book of Romans might have been uh, sort of a preview um, when Paul was trying to maybe um, get some financial help. He had a dream of going to Spain. And he was going to stop off in Rome, and he was going to spend time with the people there, and ideally, maybe they would help support his ministry. Uh, a lot of people think that's kind of what's going on. And he wanted to show them that his gospel, that his truth, that what he was telling about Jesus was the same that, that they'd heard before, that he was orthodox. And what we found is that the, the, the crux of, of Paul's gospel is a paradigm shift. Everything that Paul thought about God and death and the universe and life, it had all been turned upside down when it was revealed that the Messiah of God was not some p- political revolutionary, that when Jesus came, he wasn't going to just take over uh, Israel and Rome, that instead what Jesus was going to do is he was going to be crucified and then raised from the dead, that he was going to go up to be with the Father, he was going to send the Holy Spirit. All of this was a shocker to everybody in the first century. All the early Christians were blown away because they couldn't deny that they'd met the risen Lord, but they didn't understand. This wasn't what they expected. And Paul thought, we have to rethink all kinds of categories in light of this truth, in light of this revelation, this mystery that's been revealed. And today, uh, we're going to be asking a question. We're going we're gonna, to, we, we've been looking uh, at you know, sort of ethics for the last almost uh, three or four weeks, where we've kind of been saying that Paul's over the idea that we should be following a list of do's and don'ts. That, that the revelation of the Messiah instead is that we should be following the Spirit. And we've looked at a lot of the, the ways that that manifests itself. But one of the things that was shocking to people is, hey, okay, so if God's going to send the Spirit and the Spirit's going to lead us in the truth and show us how to live and all of those things, how come we still feel like, you know, normal life, right? How come, it, how come it's the case that, that things haven't changed that much? In fact, if we've got this magical Holy Spirit, why do we still go through problems in life? Why are we still suffering? Why, is, why, isn't, why aren't things right? Wasn't Jesus supposed to come and bring the kingdom? Didn't he talk a lot about that? The kingdom of God is here? Well, if it's here, then how come things still are tough? And in today's uh, text, I think Paul's going to answer that question in an interesting way. So let's uh, read this text. This is the CEB lightly edited uh, by me because uh, there are places where I think it's not super great. Let's read it together. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. I believe the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's children. The cosmos, the created order, was subjected to frustration. And that's not its choice. It was, it was the choice of the one who subjected it. But God did this in the hope that the creation itself, the cosmos, the universe, will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's kids. We know that the whole universe is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not just the creation. It's not just the universe. We ourselves who have the Spirit as the first crop of the harvest, we also groan inside 
as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We were saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, well, that's not hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait, we wait for it with patience. This is uh, one of the just one of the most optimistic and hopeful texts in the New Testament, where Paul's looking and he's saying, "Man, good things are in store. Good things are coming." But I want to I want to look a little closer to get a sense for what exactly he thinks is happening. And the, and the first thing to notice is Paul's use of the words glory and glorification. Uh, for those of us who um, know about the Gospels, we know that Jesus kept talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's weird. When you read Paul, he doesn't talk about the kingdom of God that much. He almost never does, in fact. Instead, what he talks about is glory. He talks about glorification. And I think what he means when he's coming up with glory is he's trying to make sense of what resurrection life is. Okay? He, he, he's calling it glory. In fact, uh, the word glory, dox, uh, doxology, that, that's our, that word doxology comes from uh, the word, Greek word for glory. It's the idea that the, the revelation of the Godhead is, is too much almost for us to understand. It's, it's, it's beyond anything that we can, can imagine. And, that's, and Paul thinks we've seen that. When? Have a short quiz for you. Um, there, I have three, I have three images, and I want you to decide which one you think most closely tracks with the resurrected Jesus. So let's take a look. Oh, by the way, uh, I think that one's not working today. So you can either look back there at my confidence monitor or up here, um, to, to make sure you see. But I want us to say which of these is the closest to what Jesus looked like when he was re- when he was raised from the dead. Oh, I'm sorry? The middle. Okay, well, hold on. Just settle down, Jack. Did, did you write this? Do you want to come up here and do it? I'm happy to sit down. Like, I don't care. Okay. Uh, <laughs> on the left, we have glorious, shining ghost Jesus. Right? Uh, and, and the idea here is that, like, so there was a, a human guy, and he dies, and but he comes back. He's got to be, you know, kind of supernatural, super awesome, right? Blinding. Uh, in the middle there, that's um, uh, there's a British forensic um, medical reconstructive artist named uh, Richard Neve. He his his whole shtick is that he um, he does historical reconstructions of famous figures and tries to draw what they actually looked like from before there was photography. This is his version of Jesus. He, uh, in the middle there, he, he got three roughly 30-year-old skulls that we have uh, from Palestine in the first century, roughly contemporary, contemporaneous to Jesus. And then he did like a plaster cast of three of them. And then he drew this. To, this is, so this is, what, this is as close to a photograph as we have of, uh, of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and you will notice that in, in, in some respects, I mean, at least, you know, he actually looks Semitic rather than the blue-eyed, you know, <laughs> the blue-eyed white Jesus <laughs> that we, we sometimes imagine. So at least he's closer to, uh, to what Jesus probably actually looked like. But the idea here is that Jesus dies, he gets crucified, right? You know, he's mur- and then he comes back and, he, and he's fixed now, he's alive again. Okay? It's as if the crucifixion had never happened. He's just now back and he's just happy, he's normal Jesus. So we'll call this one normal Jesus. On the right there is uh, zombie Jesus. This is, uh, this, 
Did anyone see Warm Bodies? It's a cute movie. Um, it's where a zombie like falls in love with a real girl, and then their love causes him to not be a zombie anymore. It's great. Anyway, the idea here is that, uh, that maybe Jesus comes out of the out of the tomb, right? And he's like, he suffered a little bit of rigor mortis. Right? He's still got a bunch of wounds from when he was crucified, but he's able to get around, kind of. Um, Jack says it's the uh, the Jesus in the middle. Well, I'm obviously messing with these. None of these. Right? It's none of these. Why? I mean, if you actually read the Gospels, it's bizarre. Like, so Jesus is raised from the dead, right? And he's, and he's outside the tomb and he's talking to Mary. And Mary's like, hey, you seem like a nice gardener. Um, do you know where the, the, the dead corpse is? Because he's gone. And Jesus is talking to her. He's like, oh, he's, he's, he's left. And, and finally Jesus is like, hey, Mary, it's me. And he's like, and suddenly she, suddenly she recognizes him. So presumably he doesn't look exactly the same, right? Because if he looked exactly the same, she'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's Jesus, right? And this happens many times. There's even a, a, there's even a story where um, there's these two guys walking on the road, and Jesus, like, shows up next to them. He starts to, in fact, our verse of the month comes from this conversation. And Jesus is explaining to them uh, the, the story of Jesus and the Messiah. And then they invite him to stay and they have dinner. And as soon as they eat together, they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, it's you. And then poof, he's gone. So it's, it, it's a little bit more like, that sounds to me a little more like shining magic ghost Jesus. But then there's also testimony that, that Jesus shows doubting Thomas the wounds in his body, right? So he somehow, uh, somehow is able to, to like, live and breathe even though he has wounds that would kill you, like mortal wounds. And that's sort of a little bit more like zombie Jesus. The point is, is that, that Whatever had happened with the risen Lord, one of the reasons actually the resurrection is so interesting in history is that it was, unpre- it was no one had ever predicted a, a life beyond death like this. Um, there, there were thoughts that they had lots of different theories about what resurrection might look like, but the, the resurrection story that Christians told was just completely outside the box. And, and maybe some, some Christians think that's a good reason to think that they were telling the truth. That this really was something they experienced. This completely, it's not zombie Jesus, it's not normal Jesus, it's not shining ghost Jesus, it's a little bit all three. And, and somehow we have to, to navigate that. You ever uh, have to get new clothes? I do pretty frequently. Because <coughs> I gain weight so quickly. Um, I have some visual representations of that. This on the left, that's uh, me this morning as I was putting on a, uh, I'm just kidding, that's Google image search, but that has happened. Um, on the right there, uh, the floods are in, flood pants are in, and so this guy, this guy, he, uh, he just took it to the next level, he's, he's doing floods for his suit. Someone needs to tell him, bro, uh, you don't fit in those pants, they're too small for you. Imagine, if you will, you uh, are, are, like, hearken back to some of your childhood memories. Do any of you remember clothes that you loved when you were a kid? An article of clothing that you loved? Imagine if you could. I mean, that clo- that, those clothes are long gone. But imagine that you could pull those out of the past and, and try to put them on. Right? I mean, it's, you know, it would be a fat guy in a little coat. <laughs> Like, it would be, you'd destroy them. 
because your childhood pants could not contain you, right? Nor could your childhood, and not, and okay, for those of you who are healthy and fit, way to go. But this applies to you too, because you've also grown taller. You're, you're, you were a child, now you're an adult. And if you tried to fit into those clothes, it, it wouldn't work. You'd explode them, you'd destroy them. Paul thinks something similar is happening with the glory of God, the the resurrection. Before Jesus was raised from the dead, he was basically like a normal human guy. But suddenly, somehow, in the transformation of the resurrection, God's glory infused him. And now Jesus is too much for normal human bodies. Jesus is beyond that. I mean, you can, you can sort of, like, there's, there's parallels to it, and, and, and it's certainly still a human being, and he's certainly still physical, but it's, the glory of God is so wonderful, so amazing, that it's beyond anything that a normal human can, can carry. And so the resurrection is this very difficult to wrap our heads around notion of life. And what Paul says, he says, guess what? That's your future too. You too are going to embrace glory. You too are going to be made glorious in this text. You too are going to have a life that's like the one the resurrected Jesus has now. And that life doesn't fit in what we normally see in the world. It's the first thing in your note sheets. The glory of God doesn't fit into our normal this earth bodies. It doesn't fit. God's glory is beyond that, and it's hard to know exactly how that works out. Um, but it's definitely like there's something beyond, something transcendent. And Paul thinks that's our future. Let's go back to the text. The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's children. Uh, this translation, I, lo- I love this. CEB does breathless anticipation. Paul's um, a Jew, and so he thinks Hebrewishly even though he writes in Greek. And what he does in this sentence is he does a, a classic Hebrew thing where he repeats a word, eager anticipation, and he repeats it twice to really emphasize how like pumped the, the creation is. So it's like the, the creation is eagerly anticipating the, the eagerly anticipated revelation of God's children. And so in English, it would be more like breathless anticipation. Like, I can't wait to see what the revelation of God's children is going to look like. The universe itself, in some way, is like, is like, man, I cannot wait to see when everybody is glorious like Jesus. Going on in the text. The creation itself believes it's going to be fret, uh, set free from the slavery to decay. Everything nowadays just gets worse and worse and worse until we <coughs> entropy, right? Well, there's a, there's a hope that the creation is going to be beyond entropy. It's going to go on to, I think the word for, um, they made up a word called eutropy. It's uh, the opposite of entropy. It's like instead of everything going down and crashing, things getting better and better and better, that, that the freedom that the God's children we have right now, that the whole creation is going to have that. But, but we ourselves don't have it fully yet. And so we also groan inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. That groaning. This is the groaning uh, that happens when... Um, you really, 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 really want something and you can't have it. Ah. You might have felt this uh, if you've desired, say, justice and you've seen terrible injustice and you're like, ah. because you can't do anything about it, right? You're powerless. 
This is uh, Reuben. Reuben lives in Gary, Indiana. Um, I read this book, uh, Dignity, um, and it's about kind of the people who feel like they've been left behind uh, in America. And Reuben, uh, Reuben has this very interesting perspective. So he, he was born in Gary, Indiana. He lived in Gary, Indiana. Um, Gary, Indiana is 80,000 people right now. It's predominantly African-American, like almost overwhelmingly African-American, but it didn't used to be. 60 years ago, it was um, maybe half and half uh, African-American and Caucasian. But then um, the factories all closed, right? The factories closed in right around the 1970s uh, as part of globalization. Uh, the factories were outsourced. And at the same time, uh, there was a, a massive white flight where uh, the Caucasians who were losing their jobs all left Gary, Indiana. At the time, Reuben was uh, in the military, and so he was overseas, uh, and he only heard about it. He stayed in the service uh, for 20 years or however long it took for him to get a pension. He came back, and where did he end up? He ended up back in Gary, Indiana, in his, in his hometown, his, where, he, where he grew up. And he wanted to get a job, but there were no jobs. The factories were closed. Everything was falling apart. Unemployment was through the roof. And, 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 but he, he, he had a pension from the military, so he just stayed there. He could have done better if he'd left, uh, but he, this was home. And so the guy who uh, interviewed him, who took this picture, uh, Chris Arnade, he asks him, he says, well, Reuben, why didn't you just leave? Why, why stay? And Reuben says, well, this is home. This is where my family is. This is where my friends are. This, is, this place matters to me. And that was striking uh, when I read this because, you know, I, I grew up and I was in some ways raised to be the sort of person who could be at home anywhere. Right? Like, you know, you go, I, I went off to college. Right? And it was assumed that after college I would go wherever my career took me. Right? And presumably now in the United States of America, no one stays at the same company for more than five years. And so you, you do your five years here, then you move up and you move to a new city and you bounce around over and over. And that's just normal now. And it was shocking to me reading this that anyone could possibly think that it's really important to stay in a place, that there's a, that home is, is connected to geography. I'd always believe that home is, you know, where your heart is, where your family is, right? The idea that home is actually connected to a place. Now imagine if you thought that way, and maybe there are some folks here who do. Maybe uh, you're a transplant to California, but home is actually somewhere else. And no matter how long you're here, it always feels like that's home. There's a sense of, uh, of longing of wishing that you could get back that I think we've lost in a lot of our contemporary, you know, we're global economic migrants, we move from here to here. We've lost this sense of what it's like to long for home. One time in my life I felt this, and that was when I was living in Japan. People often ask me, like, how was it? And I say, well, it was the best time of my life and the worst time of my life. And I lived there for two years, and the worst part of it was usually right around October when the days got really short, because I lived, you know, latitudinally north of where we are here. And so, you know, I would get off work at like 4.30-ish, and I would come home, and it was already dark. And I had this empty house. It was a two-story house. And uh, there were tatami mats, and I had all the luxuries of the first world available to me, but, but I was alone. 
And I remember thinking, I can't get back right now. You know what I mean? Like, I, I literally did not at the time have enough money to get to an airport and get on a plane and get home. I was stuck. And I, there were nights where I was just like, Whew. I remember the first year I was there, like, I called home and I was like, parents, it's like $1,000 to come home for Christmas. And they're like, let's just do it. Because I just needed, I needed to get back. And that's Paul. That's what Paul, that's that, that, that groaning of the creation. The creation knows that there's this glorious future, a future that doesn't fit in the world that we live in right now. But that future is real, and that's home, and we can't get there. And so we're just like, ah, ah, I want that so bad. And, it's, and we can have little pictures of it. We'll talk more about that. We can have little examples of it here, little tastes of it here. But ultimately, getting home is impossible right now. And I wonder how much of us, how, my, how many of us really uh, desire home? Because it feels like, for the most part, Southern California, right? The weather's amazing. Thank God for this summer, a little cooler than the last few years where it's really boiling. Like, the, the water at the beach is phenomenal right now. Like, we have all the conveniences that we need. I set the AC here to 68 degrees so that as we come and gather, it should you know, normalize right to about 70, 71. We are really, really comfortable. And yet, next thing your note sheets, part of spirituality now is longing for the world to be made right. A huge part for Paul. Remember, in the back of your minds, why are we suffering, right? Well, here's part of it. Part of the suffering that we experience now is we don't fit here. We'll get back, we'll get back to that. Let's go back to the text. This is cool. Uh, this is the very end. If we see what we hope for, that's not hope. Who hopes for what they already see? Man, you know what's ruined hope? YouTube. YouTube is the biggest, pr- I mean, not the biggest. I hate the internet. I'm addicted to the internet, but I know that's bad. And YouTube is a real big problem. 1992, I remember, I really wanted that Sega CD. Uh, Sega Genesis was a 16-bit uh, system. Right around the early 90s, CD-ROM technology came out. See, it was amazing. You could fit five, maybe even 600 megabytes of information on one disc. Game changer. Because now it's possible to have uh, video games where you actually hear dialogue and see video clips while you're playing. I heard about that, and I just about lost it. And so I remember uh, Christmas 1992, for the three months leading up to Christmas, the Sega CD had just been released. I was the only child, so like my parents had nothing better to do than spoil me. So the rest of you, I'm sorry you didn't get it, but I did. And while I was waiting for it, while I was waiting for it, I was sitting there, and I, I, remember, I remember sitting at, in, in bed at night and thinking and just imagining, oh, man, when Sonic CD comes out, maybe we'll get to hear what Sonic actually sounds like, his voice. Oh man, how long are these games going to be? This is incredible. The, is, this is game changer. Anything's possible. My kids, they like LOL dolls. If you don't know what that is, you are in a great place. Don't learn. <laughs> I have a picture of an LOL doll to ruin your life. 
Uh, so what my kids do is they, they, don't, they don't just have a, a toys that they dream about. Instead, what they do is they go on YouTube and they watch video after video after video of someone getting this toy and opening it and playing with it. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It's like, it's like you're living a virtual life. Dude, get the toy and go play with it. Don't watch videos about other people doing it. Notice what's, what's changed here is that, so if, if my kids get an LOL doll, there, there's no surprise for them. Even, I mean, they, they've watched over and over. They don't even know what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to react because actors on TV have shown them, right? And so they, but there's no sense where they're sitting there imagining. By the way, I'm just being ridiculous. Obviously, kids still imagine, you know, this is an illustration, don't hold me to it. Anyway, they're sitting there and they're like, they, they, there's no sense of imagination of, of what is this going to be? What's it going to be like? And I know it could be this and it could be that. And wow, I just want to live and be present in this thing that I'm hoping for. This does have positive uh, you know, implications as well. On the right there is uh, the, uh, it's a roller coaster. So um, my daughter Alice likes to watch videos of people going on roller coasters. And one of the ones she's watched over and over is the Incredicoaster, formerly the California Screaming at, uh, at California Adventure in Disneyland. So about six months ago, she'd been watching it so many times, she was like, Daddy, hey, if we go to Disneyland, can, will you take me on Incredicoaster? I was like, <sighs> dude, the first upside-down roller coaster I went on, I was like 15 years old. I was a total coward. I remember crying at like 11 years old because I was scared of Space Mountain. Okay, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm, and Alice is like, but, but I, I'm ready for this. So, so we get there. She's seen it on video. She knows exactly what to expect. We go, I mean, obviously different because now there's the noise and all the, So She's nervous, but she's with me. And there's like a 17-year-old kid shaking in his boots. This is his first. And my, and my daughter is looking at me like, you coward. Like... <laughs> And she, she's seven years old. She goes on the Incredicoaster. My mind's blown. I'm like, wow. But why is that? What, what used to be, you know, this, this imagination. I was terrified of what, the, what, a, what a roller coaster might do to me and falling. She'd seen it so many times. That, 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 that mystery was gone. Let's uh, skip the next one. I don't want to talk about Amazon and YouTube more. Let's not do that. Um, the... The, the point, though, is that, is that when Paul's sitting here and he's like, hey, hey, the glory of God, you know, it doesn't fit here. The, this world, it's not right. We can't, the, the, the glory can't, it spills over and, it, and it's, it can't be contained here. And so we're longing for this thing. We're, we're hoping for it. And part of what that means is that you have to look at the clues that we have and you have to imagine. You have to imagine what the world will be like when glory is made full. When, when we really are, because it's not something that fits in our normal brains. That's thanks saying your note sheets. Part of spirituality now is imagining the way the kingdom will be in its fullness. It's an, it's an imagine, and, and I, I think there's a lot of value in what Paul's saying. He's saying, he's saying, saying, we actually spend time hoping for this thing, waiting patiently for a world that is different than the one we're in now. I, you know, uh, I see, you know, I, I paid too much attention to the news. Thank you, Doug, for pray, praying about that. And, and part of that, that, what goes on, is I, wa- I watch the news, and I see what goes on in our country, and I just, I'm like, ah! This is infuriating. 
I see powerful people get away with all kinds of nonsense. I see rich people not being held to account because they can pay the man. I see people you know, getting passed over and looked over. I see people in our congregation get beat up by other people who take advantage of them. I see all kinds of awful things. And part of me is like, it's like, what would it be like to be in a world where none of this happens? A world where, where it's actually like the way Jesus talked about things, that that's actually how it is everywhere. How rad would that be? And then and this imagining and hoping and being like, and I know it's coming, and if I can just hang on, it's coming. It's just really, really hard to live in between. To know that the resurrection life, the glorious life is ours, but, but ah, ah, ah. So what does that mean life is like now? Did you notice what Paul said? Let's go, uh, go back to the text. Notice this. If we really suffer with him, we'll be glorified. The present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory. Keep going. Creation is frustrated. Creation's groaning and suffering labor pains. It's a, it's a beautiful image, by the way, um, that the, the universe is like in labor. Um, and, and for those of you who've you know, seen and experienced or experienced a birth I'm sorry but also like it, there's a there's a a power to it where it's like it's like this 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 groaning and this crying out it's going to lead to something so amazing so beautiful but when you're in the middle of it man you're like anything but this and we also groan what Paul seems to think is he seems to think that, that our lot, as it were, is to be in a particular kind of suffering. It's not just that like things are bad, because things aren't always bad. But they are, in a sense, like we're, we're, we're living in this world where we know what's coming. And so we live as best we can, according to Jesus' teaching. We live out a kingdom life here and now. But that sets us at odds with everything else that's going out in the universe. There's this, this real friction in between those who are expecting and waiting and enacting uh, this, this, this glory that in, in whatever limited form, and for everybody else who just goes along as though things are the way they've always been. It's, if you're familiar with um, you know, Minor Threat, right? Out of Step, the 80s hardcore band. Is there's a sense where like, like what we are is just out of step. It's not in keeping. It's, it's, there's something different about us, and so we're always going to be uncomfortable in the world. We're always going to look and feel, to some extent, like a black sheep. They probably spray-painted that. I don't know. Are there such things as real black sheep? Is that a thing? What colors do sheep come in? Rainbow? Great. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> the last thing I know about is, like, you know, the real world, like, nature and stuff. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I do. I do know what it's like to feel like a black sheep, and I'm sure many of us do. Where like everyone else seems to be like, "Oh, this is how things are," and you're like, "Is it? Is this how things are?" 
Because I, I, I'm pretty sure that they're not. I'm pretty sure that what we're actually expecting is a completely different, you know, kingdom and power and glory, a totally different way of uh, operating, a different type of government, a different type of society, a different type of culture. Something. Uh, there are many things that are great about where we are, but we are also radically apart from 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 that. The future is not the present. And, and, and insofar as we're living into that future, the present is uncomfortable. We don't fit. Or at least we shouldn't. Are you out of step? Leave you, we've been doing inventories. These are like, this is how we've been doing like the practical application. Inventories, like, hey, ask yourself this question. Is this, is this, is this real for you or is this is a joke? So let's, uh, let's pull it up here, the out-of-step check. As a community and as individuals, are we genuinely out-of-step? Well, question. When I imagine heaven, is it really just a continuation of my present circumstances, only better? <laughs> like, uh, and if you're, if you're really in sync with the OC, you know, and, you're, and things are great, you're like, Imagine this, but forever. Is that heaven? Is that the kingdom of God? I can imagine, because I'm pretty close to that. I, at this point in my life, I feel like I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. But like right now, it's like, man, if we could just keep this rolling, this is good. Is that, and I wonder, if, if that's kind of how you feel about, about heaven, then you might be, what was Jeff Fox? You might be a redneck if you might be co-opted by the culture. Next, do I long for anything? If so, what? Desire is a—it's a profoundly human thing. In fact, there's a lot of theologians now who um, who who take the the idea of desire because it's common to all humanity. Every human being knows what it's like to desire, and 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 they recognize that that even in God's being, like God and God's self, desires more of God. So the Father desires the Son, and the Son reciprocates that in the Spirit. That even in Godhead, longing is something real to God. And if we're not longing for something, if we are not consumed by a desire, by the way, desire for you know actual good things. Then we might be out of, we might be totally in step. We might be, we might be satisfied and comfortable. Instead, what God's calling us for is a longing for something transcendent, something beyond, a, a way of living that's, that's more than this. And it doesn't, it's not something you can reduce to the stuff that you have or the relationships you're in. It's, it's, it's a complete reconfiguration of the universe. And I, I mean, a lot of us were just numb. The idea of a genuine, deep desire, it's like, eh, why bother? Number three, do I feel at home here? This is an ironic one because um, one of the things we say about Coast is we want it to be Bible, grace, and family. We want people to feel at home here. What do we mean by that? What we mean is we want this place to be something that's radically different from the world outside so that the people who are longing for heaven will feel comfortable here. Do you get that? So the world outside is going to be doing what they do, and, and it's awful. And we're going to be doing as much as we can what Jesus says. 
And, and so the kinds of people who long for that will feel comfortable here, right? So, so I, I would say, do you feel at home on earth? Like when you walk, when you're at, when you're at the, the mall, when you're at the shops at Mission Viejo, is that where you're comfortable? Also, the, uh, the, um, the, in San Clemente where they put the, the, the outlets. You guys been there? Who got paid to make that happen? Nothing ever gets built in San Clemente except for the, the outlet shops. How did that? I don't even know how that happened. But when you're there, you're like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is awesome. This is what I want. This is, this is where life is. Or is it a place that's out of step with the world? That's where comfort is. That's where home feels. Number four. <laughs> Do I fit in? Belonging is an interesting thing because it's a deeply felt human need. And so that actually is one of the things that causes us to want to be compromised to the world. We want to fit in. We want to, you don't want to be the weird guy at the office, right? You don't want to be the one kid that's like, you know, doing things differently and so everyone's looking down at you. You want to be, you want to fit in. You want to feel like you're normal. If you feel like you're normal, you might be compromised to the culture. The place you should feel like you're normal is all the rest of the weirdos right here. Number five. Is there some injustice, some disordering of society, or something deeply wrong in the world that bothers me? This kind of gets to that longing thing. Part of being a Christian and part of what Paul's vision of, of what it is to suffer is to be deeply at odds with the current order. And to recognize that there's something beyond, something that supersedes it. To long for it, to imagine it, to live into it as much as possible in this community. If there's nothing about the world that that really, really sticks in your craw, then you may not be engaged with the Spirit. Desire, longing, imagination... Those are the sufferings of the church. And when we live in them, we can expect that we will also live into the glory that we see in Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, I just ask for a vision uh, from you for every person here to, to long for your kingdom to recognize that we're out of step, that we don't fit. And to have the, the hopeful imagination to, to see what you're ordering, what things will be like. And God, I ask that we will be a congregation that's a little bit radical and a little bit out of step and a little bit just uncomfortable and at odds with a world that, that is okay with injustice, that is okay with, with greed and violence, that's okay with all the things that are just desperately wrong. But instead, we'll be um, living the way you ask us to live. As we saw last week, in righteousness and joy and in peace. And that as we do that, we, we will model and instantiate and create little visions, little previews of the glory that is to come. And that though we are far from home, we will have the family joy of being together as we wait in patience. We bless you, God. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.